0: Well, our sermon text this morning is uh, Revelation chapter 2, verses 18 to 29, and if you're able to do so, I'll ask you to stand for the reading of God's holy word this morning. Revelation 2, verses 18 to 29, give ear to the reading of God's word. It says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God who has eyes like a flame of fire and whose feet are like burnished bronze. Of Satan, to you I say, I do not lay on you any other burden, only hold fast what you have until I come. The one who conquers and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give authority over the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, as when earthen pots are broken in pieces, even as I myself have received authority from my father, and I will give him the morning star. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches." This ends is the reading of God's Word. You may be seated. Well, man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of our God. Let's pray and ask His blessing upon His Word to us today, that He might teach us what it means. Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. We thank You that You give us Your Scriptures uh, that are inerrant, they are inspired, inerrant, authoritative, and sufficient, that they, they in them You reveal Yourself to us and reveal the way of salvation through faith in Your Son. There in its pages to us, we pray that you would, even as the end of our text says, that you would give us eyes that we might uh, see and ears that we might hear great things from your word. Let us hear what the Spirit says to the churches, even to our church, and let us be doers of your word and not hearers only, deceiving ourselves. For it's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Well, our text this morning, if you're if you're new uh, here, if this is your first time, we have just started a, a study through the book of Revelation. And we are uh, this morning at, uh, in our text, the fourth of Christ's seven letters to the seven churches in Asia Minor. Uh, these these uh, letters found in chapters two and three, basically Revelation two and three, contain these seven letters. And each of them are addressed to different churches throughout Asia Minor, uh, modern day what we think of now as Turkey. Each of these churches was different in some way. There's some overlap between some of them, as we're going to see, but some of them were different. Each of them experienced different trials and circumstances and different difficulties. Each of them exhibited different strengths and different weaknesses. And so what you find in these letters is that Jesus deals with each one of them differently according to those varying circumstances, struggles, and even their different shortcomings and sins. All but two of these seven churches receive Uh, some kind of uh, correction or rebuke from the Lord. The only two that don't are Smyrna and Philadelphia. Each of these letters, uh, of the five letters that receive that note of rebuke, uh, the predominant theme in those five of the seven letters is a call from the Lord to his people to repent. Five of the seven churches he tells to repent. In fact, if you were to pick one word maybe or one theme that goes throughout these whole both of these chapters, that would be it. Christ calling his churches to repent. The church in Ephesus, that's the very first letter in chapter 2, that church was very strong doctrinally speaking. They were strong in their doctrine. uh, But Jesus had something against them. They had forsaken their first love, and that had led to them becoming slack in good works of love and mercy that they had once been so zealous to do. This was a church that seemingly was all head and no heart and no hands and feet besides that. The second letter in verses 8 through 11 is to the church in Smyrna. This is one of the two churches that's not rebuked by the Lord. Uh, They they were uh, not rebuked by him for any sin or shortcoming in their midst. What their struggle was, was they were suffering violent persecution and affliction for the name of Christ. And so what does Jesus call them to do? He calls upon them to be faithful unto death. Difficult kind of thing for us to think of our Lord saying, but that's what He told them to do in verse 10. Last Sunday, we looked at the church, Christ's letter to the church in the city of Pergamum. Now, that was a church that we saw was compromising with the world around them. Worldliness and false teaching had crept in among the church there, even to the point, it kind of sounds like something what Dan was just talking about, the point where some professing believers in Christ were eating food sacrificed to idols and committing sexual immorality. In short, what they were doing was they were acting more like pagans than they were believers in Jesus Christ. Well, here in our text this morning, we find a letter from the Lord to the church in the city of Thyatira, which was in a lot of ways a lot like the church in the previous letter, the church in Pergamum. But in this particular case, the compromise wasn't just with the world. They had compromised with false teaching and even heresy in their, in their midst. Now the first thing we're going to see in our text this morning, as we see in all the letters, is Christ's depiction or description of himself to the church in Thyatira. Just as he did in the first three letters in the chapter, what Jesus does is he takes a portion, a part, of what he had given to John in chapter 1. There's this vision of Christ to John. It's It's not telling John what Jesus actually looked like, but there was a vision he gave John in Revelation 1 verses 12 to 16, and in that vision, he describes himself in some way or depicts himself to John in, in such a way as to show his glory. Well, in each one of the letters, he borrows a piece of that vision or a snippet of that vision and applies it to that particular church. And in verse 18 of our text, he says, And to the angel of the church in Thyatira write the words of the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and whose feet... Or like burnished bronze. That's part, that's, that's taken from that vision in chapter 1 of Revelation. Now, everything in that vision that God gave, that the Lord Jesus gave to John was for a purpose. Everything he gave in that vision about himself was needful for the church, for for all these churches and all, all of us as well, to know and be assured of about the Lord. Now, here our Lord singles out a part of it, of that vision And I think the part he singles out is the part most applicable or needful for the church in Thyatira, given their particular situation and circumstance and their particular sins and shortcomings. The first thing he reminds them of and reminds you and I of this morning is his deity. What does he call himself? The son of God. The son of God. We have to be careful in a lot of ways to remember just who it is that's addressing us here as well as in all of God's word, That is the Lord Jesus Christ himself, the very Son of God, the Lord of glory. And just as we saw in our call to worship from Psalm 2, which is quoted in this text, uh, I think it goes without saying, but sometimes we need to hear it. The Lord Jesus Christ is not someone to be trifled with. The Lord Jesus Christ is not one to be trifled with. We often think of him with good reason at Christmas time as gentle Jesus, meek and mild, And that's for good reason, and the mercy and gentleness of our Lord toward his people is a wonderful source of comfort to you and I. I hope that's what you understand. In Isaiah chapter 42, this prophecy of the servant of the Lord, the Messiah, uh, there he is described as one who would not break a bruised reed or quench a faintly burning or smoking wick. I mean, that's that's it's like he won't hurt a fly. That's how gentle the Messiah was, certainly in his first coming. He came not to conquer uh, in a military way. He came to suffer and die for his people. But the wonder of that description of, of the Lord Jesus Christ as being the one who wouldn't break a bruised reed or quench the smoking wick of a candle, the wonder of that description lies precisely in the fact uh, that the one being described there as one who would not break a bruised reed is the almighty son of God incarnate. Even the one who is the very king of kings and lord of lords and the judge of all the earth. That's the wonder of it. Anybody, in a sense, who's weak could be gentle. Jesus is gentle despite the fact that he is almighty and the king of kings and lord of lords. The one that's so powerful and glorious that he would be so merciful and gentle to his people, his wandering afflicted sheep, is a wonder of wonders to those of us who have believed in Christ for salvation. The one who dashes the nations, the rulers of this earth to pieces with the rod of iron is the one that leads us by his rod and his staff. Those of us who come to him for salvation. That very same Jesus who won't break the bruised reed is also the one who will break the nations with a rod of iron. That's our Jesus. That's our Savior and our King. He will dash them to pieces like pottery. Not only that, but it tells us in our text that he has eyes like a flame of fire and his feet are like burnished bronze. That Jesus has eyes like a flame of fire. What does that mean? It speaks of a few things. It speaks of his infinite holiness. It reminds us, as Hebrews twelve twenty nine says, uh, echoing the Old Testament, that our God is a what? A consuming fire. He's not to be trifled with. He's to be worshipped in holiness, and reverence, and awe. His eyes being like a flame of fire tells us that he sees and knows all things. It's a picture of his judgment. The fires of judgment, the fires that refine gold, even as his feet are talked about, burnished bronze. He he sees all things. He knows all things perfectly. He judges justly and rightly in all things. That's why in Romans 2.16, the Apostle Paul speaks of a day when he says, according to my gospel... God judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. He doesn't just judge the things that everybody sees out in the open. He sees things that are in secret as if they were out in the open. He judges the secrets of men by Christ Jesus. Brothers and sisters, the world needs to be reminded that the Lord Jesus Christ is the one to whom all power and authority has been given. Those who are yet lost and are still in their sins... Uh, and even we ourselves should be reminded from time to time that just as we confess in the Nicene Creed that he shall come again with glory to do what? To judge the living and the dead. That's what we confess. It's what the scriptures and even our creeds teach us. Our Lord's feet, they're talked about and described as being like burnished bronze. It's like purified and, sh- and, and shined bronze. This teaches us. It teaches us, I think, that he does not have feet of clay. We still use that, that phrase, and that, that figure of speech from time to time. If you have feet of clay, what does it mean? You're not stable. You really can't be trusted to keep your word in any way. Well, Jesus is not that way. His feet are made of bronze, not clay. His, his purposes cannot be thwarted or overturned. He cannot be moved. His judgments will stand. Nothing can stop him as he treads down his enemies and the enemies of his church. It's a picture of power and of strength in his judgments. These were the things that the church in Thyatira and many churches in our day needed to be reminded of. These are things that we still need to be reminded of in the church today in our own day and take to heart and be be reminded of. If we would remember that Jesus Christ sees all things and he will judge all men according to his perfect knowledge and holiness, how much differently might you and I learn to live and how, how much differently might we learn to behave in the household of God, which as Paul tells us is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. Well, the second thing that we see in our Lord's letter to this church in his description is his description not only of himself, but of the serious problem, the deadly serious problem that he found and saw in the church there in Thyatira. What was the problem that Jesus saw with his eyes of as a flame of fire, their toleration of false teaching and heresy. It doesn't say they taught it themselves, but they put up with it in their midst, in their congregation. They tolerated it. He tells them that he knows their works. The first part of that, that first verse there in verse 19, if you could just stop there, it would be a wonderful description of a church. He says that he knows their works, he knows their love, he knows their faith, He knows their service. He knows their patient endurance. And he even says that he knew that their latter works, the ones that they were just doing even then, their latter works exceeded their earlier works. That's an amazing thing to say. They not only didn't lose steam, they served their neighbors more and more. And yet he says he had something against them, didn't he? You can serve and serve and do all these things, but... if you neglect the other things, it doesn't make up for it, and vice versa. In verse 20, the Lord tells us, he identifies to the church what the problem was that he saw among them. He says, but I have this against you. Again, five of the seven churches hear this kind of a phrase. Not something you want to hear from Jesus Christ, but it's needful to be heard when it, when the problem is there. He says, but I have this against you, what? That you tolerate that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess, and is teaching and seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. That may sound like a strange rebuke to our ears, our modern ears, but the church in Thyatira was a tolerant church. The church was a tolerant church. If they had cars, they would have had the coexist bumper stickers put on the back. And they probably took pride in it. And their tolerance was the source of their trouble. It was the source in a lot of ways of Christ's rebuke to them. And it was so serious, this was not a small thing. This so-called tolerance was such a problem, it was so serious that Jesus threatened, kind of promised severe chastisement and judgment on account of it. This was no minor thing. You know, We are often told in our day, and not without reason, Uh, it holds true in some regard that tolerance is a virtue. Tolerance can be a virtue, can it? In the right circumstance, in the right way, tolerance is a good thing. Tolerance can also be a sin, can it? The wrong kind of tolerance can be evil in the sight of the Lord. We must not tolerate what Jesus hates. And in the earlier letter in this very chapter, Jesus says he hates something. You know Jesus hates things? He doesn't He doesn't love sin. He doesn't love false teaching and heresy. He hates those things. This particular church, and many like it in our own day, tolerated false teaching in their midst, even the kind of false teaching that had consequences, the kind of false teaching that led to idolatry and led to sexual immorality in their members. Just as the Lord compared the source of compromise in the previous church to the teaching of Balaam. Remember that, last if you were here last week, he, he talked about them following the teachings of Balaam, another Old Testament figure. Even so, here in this letter to the church in Thyatira, he compares the source of this false teaching among them to another Old Testament figure, that of someone with a very wicked reputation, Jezebel. If you know who Jezebel was, the very name is a shock to you. For him to compare someone in the church and her influence to Jezebel was a slap in the face, and possibly a very needed one in this case. William Hendrickson notes in his book on Revelation that her name is a synonym for seduction to idolatry and immorality. If you know her story in the book of 1 Kings, you know that's that's true. We're told in 1 Kings that Ahab, the king of the southern kingdom, or, or excuse me, the northern tribes of Israel, uh, he ruled in Samaria for 22 years. And 1 Kings 1630 says, this is kind of the summary of his evil rule, it says, That Ahab, quote, did evil in the sight of the Lord. And then it adds, more than all who were before him. If you read 1 Kings, that's saying something. There were some wicked kings, Jeroboam and others, but Ahab Ahab took the cake. Ahab was the one at the top of that bad list. And as if that wasn't bad enough, he added to it by marrying Jezebel. Jezebel was the daughter of the king of Sidon. You might remember Tyre and Sidon, if you know your Bible at all, and Old and New Testament both. Tyre and Sidon were pagan, I think they were Philistine cities. They were cities that were the enemies of God's people. They had wicked reputations. And so what did he do? He married the daughter of the king of Sidon. It was an unholy marriage alliance. And what was the result of that marriage? It led him into even further wickedness. If he wasn't bad enough, this marriage multiplied it tenfold. This marriage led him to, to serve and worship Baal, who was a false pagan god, verse thirty-one uh, of first Kings sixteen tells us. So he's already wicked, and then he goes, he, he he goes even further. He marries this wicked uh princess of Sidon, and what does she do? She corrupts him to the point, as if he wasn't bad enough already, that he worships Baal. Baal himself, a pagan false. God. Not only did he worship Baal, he built a temple to Baal in Samaria. The Things are getting serious. He builds a temple. He built an altar to Baal. And then he built an Asherah. And Asherah was an idol. So he's he's all in. He's all in to this wickedness and this idolatry. And he's the king of the northern tribes. And you know, as a king, what, what does he do? He doesn't just do it himself. He leads others into the same thing. Now, this is what Just a couple verses later, 1 Kings 16.33 says, this is God's view of Ahab. It says, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord, the God of Israel, to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. What happened when God's anger was provoked? If you know the story of Elijah, you know what happened next? Famine. Famine. It wasn't going to rain a drop in the land until the prophet of God spoke again and God allowed it. And worse than that, Jezebel, she wasn't content with spreading Baal worship. What did she also do? She tried to kill all the prophets of the Lord. She tried to wipe out the true religion in Israel at the time. She tried to kill them all off. Remember, uh, a lot of them were, I think a hundred of them were hidden in caves. And even Elijah got to the point where he said, so I'm the only one left. And he wasn't. What did God say? I've reserved for myself seven thousand who have not bowed the knee to Baal. You're not the only one left, but it sure seemed like it to to Elijah. So Jezebel tried to destroy the prophets of God so that the voice of God she probably thought wouldn't be spoken or heard in Israel. I think maybe now you can see why it provoked God to such anger and it had real real world consequences in their day. Now this Jezebel, who was this Jezebel in Thyatira? All these many years later in in the first century in in Asia Minor, was she an actual individual? Was Jezebel just a, a figure of speech for a brand of teaching that had come into the church? I think it's very likely that this is—it's an, an individual person. It's not her real name, but this was an actual teacher, uh, a woman that had come into the church, or maybe had risen from within the church in Thyatira. And if that's the case, they've already violated the command of Scripture. I don't think it's an accident that this particular letter speaks of these things. This way, that there's so many details in, in this short, really the longest letter of the seven, uh, that talk about this false teacher and identify her in some ways uh, as a woman. 1 Timothy 2, 11 to 14, Paul tells us something that many find uncomfortable. Many try not to preach on it. Uh, but it says there, let a woman learn quietly with all submissiveness. And then Paul says, I do not permit a woman to teach or to exercise authority over a man, rather she is to remain quiet, for Adam was formed first, then Eve, and Adam was not deceived, but the woman was deceived, and became a transgressor. Now that, that's a, a, a minefield of a passage. What's the phrase, where eagles, you know, dare, where, where brave men fear to tread? Well, I'm, d- I'm dumb enough to bring it up, but, yeah. Find yourself a dumb pastor who's, you know. Uh, well, this this passage, I think, offends many in our day, both inside and out, outside of the church. Maybe you yourself, you know, maybe when I read it, you kind of cringe, like, oh, pastor, don't bring that up. Like, well, that's in the Bible. Yeah, you know, God said it, but, uh, you know, uh, let's make it mean something else. Now, it what does it do? It, it offends us in a lot of ways, maybe. It cuts against the grain of our godless, distinctionless culture, what they would have us to believe. But if I can, to use my common phrase, boil it down. There's a lot of things it means, but let's say, let's say what's the bare minimum that that text teaches us about the gospel ministry? What's, what's the very least that you have to admit that it says? Let's just go there and we can go from there later. It, it, it says at least one thing that, uh, however it may shock us, women are not to be officers in the church. They may not be elders or pastors teaching and exercising authority in the church. That doesn't mean that all men are qualified. You're not qualified by your chromosomes. Right? That's not what we're saying. Any old Tom, Dick, and Harry or Andy can't come up here and and preach or exercise uh, discipline or administer the sacraments. Now perhaps the church in Thyatira had become so tolerant, which is easy to do, it's easy to kind of snicker and laugh at it, but you know, maybe they came, they became so tolerant early on in their existence that they came to tolerate this happening. Having a woman teach or preach among them. Now think about that. That's certainly what the pagan cults in their city did. This is what they grew up with. This is what they saw all around them. The pagan cults in Asia Minor in places like Thyatira, they had temple prostitutes. There's a phrase you don't hear very often. They had female priests and female prophetesses. And so there was probably immense pressure from the Christian church there to conform to those same practices. That's not a new thing. Think about that. That text in in Timothy that I just read in 1 Timothy 2. When did Paul write that? In the middle of the first century AD. This is not a new thing. We like to think that we've, you know, we're the ones that invented all these things. These things have been around from, from the beginning. I don't think Paul would have brought it up at all if it wasn't an issue. When When he wrote that to Timothy. Now, unlike the church in Ephesus, this church had not abandoned its first love. This church has been so zealous for love and good works that Jesus, remember what he tells them, their latter works exceeded the former ones. They were growing in their good works and their hospitality and other kinds of things to their neighbors. They were growing in their acts of love and service. But despite all that, he tells them they had tolerated that woman Jezebel who calls herself a prophetess and is teaching and seducing, whose servants? He says, my servants. They're mine. We belong to Jesus. We don't belong to ourselves. Seducing my servants to practice sexual immorality and to eat foods sacrificed to idols. Perhaps they too like the slogan, deeds not creeds. No, the liberal church is not a new invention. The same thing was true, I think, in Thyatira. In a lot of ways, this very description, I think, is fitting for many churches in our own day as well. Many churches today are nothing if not tolerant of all kinds of things, false teaching as well as immorality in their midst. And why do they claim to do it? You know the answer before I even say it. Why do they, why, why do they tolerate these things? They do it out of, so they say, love. Out of love out of an earnest desire not to offend anybody, because the greatest sin you could possibly commit is sometimes, to some, is offending them. They don't want to be thought of as narrow-minded. Who wants? To, if someone calls you narrow-minded, is it, is it a compliment? Not usually. So they were open-minded about all kinds of, of things. They didn't want to offend, they didn't want to be narrow-minded, but we must not be open-minded to error or falsehood. It is not a virtue to be open-minded to untruth and to wickedness. We must be open-minded to the truth alone. How often do we find such an approach to this in, in the church today? Doctrinal compromise in the name of so-called tolerance, I think, and, and, and in the name of love, is, I think it's epidemic in the church today. I want to say in our, in our land it's almost the norm. It's almost more common than, than it is not. Sometimes it seems as if in some places the only thing that's not tolerated is the truth. And that should not be, especially in Christ's church. And when that's the case, we shouldn't be surprised when we find elements of pagan worship and even sexual immorality and licentiousness creeping into the church. You know, doctrine has consequences and false doctrine has bad consequences. False teaching always affects the worship of the church and the life the lives of of its members you could say that the sin and shortcoming of the church here in Thyatira in a lot of ways was the polar opposite of the sins and shortcomings of the church in Ephesus it's like the mirror image the polar opposite error the one stuck to the truth but lost their first love this one gave way the truth and multiplied in their acts of love and Christ rebukes them both Christ rebukes them both and we shouldn't lose sight of that now, what was the form of this false teaching that was being so tolerated uh, in Thyatira? We don't really know for sure. It sounds very much to me like an early form of Gnosticism. Uh, there's a ten dollar word. What is not what was Gnosticism? Gnosticism was a pagan dualistic teaching or, or religious view that viewed the, the spiritual realm as kind of the, the good. If it's spiritual, it's good. If it's physical, it was bad. Pe- people hold to that kind of a truth, that kind of a, a doctrine. In our day as well. And so they viewed the physical realm to be something, as something to be kind of escaped. It was evil, it wasn't supposed to happen, Uh, everything physical was bad and everything spiritual and inner was good. Well, lots of people talk like that today. Lots of people talk as if they were spiritual, uh, in the same kind of, of way. And salvation in, in Gnosticism was through some kind of special inside knowledge that only the, the select few, the initiated, knew about. You know, you can see what the appeal might have been. You know, don't be dumb like those people out there. You know, we'll give you special inside knowledge that only you know the real spiritual people can can know about. You can see the, the appeal is to pride, and many in our day still follows things that are not that much different than that. That's why in verse twenty-four, I think he calls uh, this teaching quote the deep things of Satan. Deep things, the things that they're hidden to, to, to the average person, but you all can know them. That's kind of the appeal. That they made. Now, brothers and sisters, there are deep things of God. But where are they found? In God's Word. And they're taught plainly in His Word. God isn't playing hide and seek or blind man's bluff with us when He reveals Himself to us in His Word. He wants us to know Him and to know that we know Him. He wants us to know that we have eternal life through Jesus Christ. Not only that, but Jesus Christ, uh, Paul says, became to us wisdom from God righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that as it is written let the one who boasts let the one who boasts boast in the lord our our wisdom isn't a what it's a who christ is our wisdom and so knowing christ better and better that's where our wisdom lies and consists our wisdom is found in christ alone and in his word now, this Gnostic dualism usually ended up being applied in one of two ways, and I'll let you guess which one was more popular. The first way, the fourth form, form that it took, was that of asceticism. In other words, the body is evil, so what did this group of Gnostics do? They would, they would uh, kind of punish the body, they would deny the body, they would deny and punish the physical realm of their life, and so in, in a lot of ways sometimes these kind of Gnostics would forbid marriage, they would you know forbid certain kinds of foods, anything to punish the body uh, that's what they would would do now the other version which goes in the opposite direction, and rather than legalism and and asceticism, it went towards licentiousness. I guess you can probably guess this is the more popular of the two, and what it taught was that since the body was evil and doesn't matter, then it doesn't matter how you live in this body. your body's going to just burn up and go away, and you know that's all there is. your spirit's what matters. And what you do with your body, it can't possibly hurt your spirit, so why not sin your fill? Why not live however you want to live, and then it will all be all right in the end? And now, is that, is that if that's the case, where does that go? They would indulge in all kinds of things, including sexual immorality, because it doesn't matter. Now, brothers and sisters, do we not see that very same mindset in many churches today? Is that not commonplace, especially in our land Today, the doctrine and influence of Jezebel is alive and well in the church in the 21st century. How many think nothing of sexual immorality among professing Christians? How many churches teach that what we do in our bodies and in our bedrooms and how we treat our marriages is a matter of indifference to God? How many churches refuse to discipline such such things, such acts of wickedness among her members? It's more common than it is, I think, not. What does the Bible say about these things? 1 Corinthians 6, verses 13 to 20. Listen to the words of the Apostle Paul and listen for how many times he uses the word body. Body. It's a, Paul used this kind of logic over and over again in his word, first, in his letters. 1 Corinthians 6, 13 to 20. Paul's combating, I think, this very kind of teaching. He says, food is meant for the stomach and the stomach for food and God will destroy both one and the other. The body... There's one. The body is not meant for sexual immorality, but for the Lord, and the Lord for the body. And God raised the Lord and will also raise us up by his power. In other words, he raised Christ's body from the dead. He was raised bodily. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? Shall I then take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? Why does he say that? He's talking, I think, about the temple prostitutes and the pagan cults in which Corinth uh, found themselves. He says, never, or do you not know that he who is joined to a prostitute becomes one body with her? For as it is written, the two will become one flesh, but he who is joined to the Lord becomes one spirit with him. And then he says, flee, run, flee from sexual immorality. Every other sin a person commits is outside the body but the sexually immoral person sins against his own body. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your what? Body. Seven times in that passage, Paul says, in your body, the body, the body. Your body matters. Your body, not just your soul, matters to God. You know, However long the Lord tarries, if if the Lord waits another 2,000 years and we are dead and gone and with the Lord and our bodies are turning to dust, your body is going to be raised from the grave. You are going to be in heaven, body and soul. Christ cares for your, your body as much as for your soul. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you are not your own, but you belong, as the catechism question says, body and soul in life and in death to your faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. That's why we are to flee from idolatry as well as flee from sexual immorality. Now Christ uh takes this so seriously that he not only describes the problem, he describes the, the and threatens judgment against this false teaching in his church. He threatens very severe judgment or chastisement upon those who were involved in this kind of teaching. He calls upon the false teachers and their followers to do what? To repent. In fact, he tells them he gave them time to repent. You know, it just so happens that in this world, very often Jesus does just that. He gives time for repentance, but what what do we do? We misinterpret that time given as as him not caring. We think, you know, what's the old picture of someone at the street corner saying, you know, mocking the Lord and saying, if there's a God, let a lightning bolt strike me dead. Oh, he didn't do it. See, there's no God. What, What he should be saying is, you know what? God's giving me time to repent. He's not slow, as some count slowness, but he gives time for repentance. He says he had given her, this Jezebel, time to repent, but he says in verse 21, not not just that she didn't repent, she didn't want to. She wanted nothing to do with repentance and turning back from sin and turning to the Lord, and such hardness of heart was going to bring strict judgment. Verses 22 to 23, look what he says. Behold, you know, look. Behold, I will throw her onto a sickbed. It's literally just the word bed, but you get the picture. He talks about adultery. Now he's going to talk about another kind of bed. I will throw her onto a sickbed, and those who commit adultery with her I will throw into great tribulation unless they repent of her works. And I will strike her children dead. And all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart, and I will give to each of you according to your works. That's hard to hear. It's hard to read. Terrible affliction and even death is what, is what Christ promises to strike her and her followers with if they don't repent. Remember 1 Corinthians 1130, we saw it last week. Chapter 11 of 1 Corinthians, it's about the Lord's Supper most of it, right? And what, what had happened in Corinth, they were perverting and twisting and abusing the Lord's Supper of all the things they could have done. That's what they did. And what happened there? Paul says some of you have died because of it. That wasn't a metaphor. He's saying that Jesus judged them for it. They treated the things of the Lord with with contempt, and what did Christ do? He didn't put up with it. Some of them had actually died for their abuse of the Lord's Supper. He takes his church and the care of his church very seriously. What's the result, at least in part, uh, and and what's the purpose of that judgment? He tells us right there in verse 23, he says he's going to do all all these things. Why? So that, quote, all the churches will know that I am he who searches mind and heart and I will give to each of you according to your works and words, I'm going to show them that I am the one with the eyes like a flame of fire and feet like burnished bronze and I'm not going to stand for it and I'm going to judge and chastise severely so that the rest may fear so other, ch- other churches other congregations would see that and go whoa look what happened there look what the consequences were of their unfaithfulness to Christ you know, it's not without reason that the Bible says in 1 Peter four, seventeen to 18, it says, for it is time for judgment to begin where? It is time for judgment to begin at the household of God. And if it begins with us, what will be the outcome for those who do not obey the gospel of God? And if the righteous is scarcely saved, what will become of the ungodly and the sinner? You know, Christ's care for his church sometimes includes very severe Chastisement and it's for it's for his people's good is to keep us from danger and from the wolf but it's also it's also in part I think uh, to be a warning to the unbeliever if, if the Lord of glory and the Savior of his people can be so severe in his mercy towards his people what what will become of the sinner and those who don't believe in Christ if if he'll, if he'll chastise his own people. What will he do to those who reject him in their wickedness? He's the one who searches mind and heart. He is the one who will repay us according to our works, to the unbeliever and the impenitent. That should be an utterly terrifying thought. It should be a terrifying thought. Jesus sees it all. He sees the wickedness in your mind. He sees the wickedness in your heart and mind. He sees all of the wickedness in your life, even the things that no one else sees. You know the old saying, you can fool some of the people all the time, but you know that. You can't fool Christ ever. He sees everything. There's no double lives in front of Christ. He sees all of it. He sees all of it. And there's a day of judgment coming. Can you stand in the day of judgment? Will you stand in the day of judgment? Not by your own works, and certainly not if you're outside of Christ and still in your sins. If you're not yet a believer in Jesus Christ, turn from your sin and turn to him by faith for forgiveness and eternal life in him. And if you're a believer in Christ, as most of you, maybe all of you are this morning, rest assured that our Lord will reward you according to your good works. This is as much of a promise of good to his people as it is a warning to those who reject him. God not only accepts you as righteous in his sight because of the righteousness of Christ alone put to your account by faith in him, He's also pleased to accept and even to reward the good works that you do as imperfect as they are. And why is that? Does God reward, are any of your good works perfect? Are any of your best works even remotely perfect? No. But does God reward them anyway? If you're in Christ, yes. Why? Because He accepts your good works just like He accepts you in Christ. Otherwise, what's the point? And so the one part of this church in Thyatira that you and I should emulate is that their latter works exceeded their first. We should not grow weary in doing good if we are in Christ. We should know that the sincerity of our good works, as imperfect as they are, he is pleased to accept and reward them as pleasing in his sight because he accepts them and us in Christ alone. You and I are not saved by our good works. We are not justified by our good works. They are not the basis of God's acceptance of us at all. Only Christ himself is that. But by his grace, the Lord crowns his own gifts and graces and so rewards us as his people according to our works. The Lord tells those who had not succumbed to this false teaching to do what? In verse 25, to hold fast. You can imagine them saying, what are we supposed to do? I've got no place else to go. He says, hold fast. Hold fast to what you have until he comes and he says that he promises the one who conquers and who keeps my works until the end. To him, I will give authority over the nations. Verse 26. So that he would share in the very rule of Christ in subduing the nations. It's quoted from Psalm 2. And that such a one who conquers will be given the morning star. What's the morning star? Trick question. Who is the morning star? Christ himself, he's saying, you're going to rule with me and I'm going to give you me. I am your reward, your ultimate reward. Hold fast. By the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, may we too as a church and as believers hold fast to what we have until he comes, that we might conquer in him by faith and keep his works until the very end. By his grace, may he be pleased to let us share in his authority, rule, and even glory, even granting unto us himself the morning star amen let's let 's pray Heavenly Father we thank you for these for all of your word. we thank you for these seven letters to the seven churches and we know that uh, we are to look at them as a mirror and see if we see ourselves to see where where among these seven churches in different ways do we see the same circumstances and struggles and shortcomings and even sins in us and we ask that you would enable us to do uh, what you what you say here in our text that you would Uh, Give us an ear that we might hear what the Spirit says to this church, to us as as your local church here, the body of Christ here in Ramona, that you would help us to repent where needed, that you would help us to have our latter works exceed our earlier works, and that we would not be the wrong kind of tolerant, that we would not tolerate false teaching and false gospels and things that lead your people astray into idolatry and sexual immorality and all kinds of things that displease you. We pray that you would have mercy upon us as a people, that you would work in us what is pleasing in your sight by the work of your spirit. And we do pray that you would bring many to repentance and faith in you, that if there's anybody here this morning that does not yet know you, who is still in their sins and rebellion against you, that you would uh, show them the way that they might have seek refuge in you, as your psalm says in Psalm 2, blessed is the one who takes refuge in the Lord. And Lord, we pray that you would bring salvation to many here in our town, that many would seek their refuge in Christ alone, and so learn uh, the truth of your word and learn to flee idolatry and all these things. We pray that you'd be glorified and pleased in your church, for it's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.